Hello, this is Jennifer Matarese, and before I get started today, I would just like to say another huge thank you to those of you who were able to contribute to the Kickstarter. I was able to go out this week and get a new microphone, an isolation shield, and a new laptop which hopefully won't have an aneurysm in the middle of a recording like the last one would. I also got some recording software which I've been playing with all day, so we'll see how things improve over the next couple of episodes. I do have a bit of a cold coming on though, so I may sound a little bit strange anyway. I'd also like to specifically thank Dina, who chose the subject for this episode. Either I've never heard of this disaster, or I completely forgot about it, but either way, I enjoyed researching this so much. Thirdly, a trigger warning. This episode features the deaths of children and descriptions of burn injuries and deaths. If you can't handle that, you may want to skip this one. And thank you very much for listening. With that in mind... Welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 27, The Carrollton Bus Collision, May 14, 1988. 27 deceased, 34 injured. I think most of us can remember what it was like to go on a school trip as a kid. You piled onto a bus next to your friends, Hopefully a charter bus, but usually a school bus. You dangled over the seat to talk to the person behind you, and you tried to sleep even though the seats weren't exactly built for comfort. When the bus would go too quickly around a corner or skid on some ice, you might imagine that it could very well tip over. But that might probably be the worst of whatever you might imagine. You probably wouldn't imagine something as awful as what happened to a group of young people coming home to Radcliffe, Kentucky after a day at the amusement park. The Radcliffe Assembly of God is a Pentecostal church in Radcliffe, Kentucky, which was running a trip to Kings Island for its youth group. They actually ran this trip every year, and this would be the 10th of these such trips. Now, this is the sort of church where members are referred to as Brother Smith or Sister Jones, that sort of thing. And the kids who were coming on this trip came from schools across Radcliffe, Radcliffe excuse me, North Hardin High School, Alton Middle School, Radcliffe Middle School. All of these schools were sending kids on this trip. Now, not everybody on board was a member of the Assembly of God Church. They were simply joining their friends for a day of fun. For example, Jennifer Arnett invited people who were in the band with her at school to come along. Because of this, the church had come to expect, due to previous year's experience, that more people than were scheduled to be on the trip would just arrive on the morning of Saturday, May 14th. Prior to that morning, 35 people were signed up for the trip, and 20 more were expected. Kings Island is an amusement park in Mason, Ohio, that was a frequent spot for groups in Radcliffe to travel to. In fact, one or two people on the bus that day had already gone to the park the day before with another group. May 14th was actually Church Day at Kings Island. It was a day when church groups would visit and the entire park would be filled with them. The bus itself was a 1977 Ford B700 chassis with a superior school bus body. 
superior the company, not the quality. The bus's frame had been built by the Ford plant in Kentucky before being shipped to Lima, Ohio to have a school bus body outfitted to it. According to the records, it was built March 23rd, 1977. That would be the day that the chassis itself was started. From April 1st of that year onward, all United States school buses required fuel tank guard frames, better access to emergency exits, and other safety standards which needed to be met. The bus was part of a 1976 statewide order of 600 buses for the Kentucky Department of Schools, and it was used by them from 1977 to 1987. At that point, the Assembly of God Church obtained the bus from the Meade County School District for $2,750. Their previous bus had broken down during another Kings Island trip in 1986. The bus had been used for the church for a Kings Island trip in July of the previous year, as well as for any other uses they might have for it. Every day, grammar school children were being taken back and forth from the Dove Academy to the church for lunch. It was also used for multiple group trips like a gospel concert, a baseball game, a ski trip, lots of different things like that. By May 1988, it had racked up one th uh, sorry, excuse me, 113,000 miles. The church kept it up thanks to the help of members with mechanical knowledge, including one man who worked in the motor pool at nearby Fort Knox. It had gotten a new air compressor and brakes not long before the county sold it to the, to the church. In fact, the week before the crash, two new tires were installed and the front end suspension and steering were examined as well. The bus had 11 rows of three foot wide seats separated by an aisle precisely one foot wide. Now, one foot doesn't sound like a lot and it, is, it doesn't even sound like a lot when you're a small child. I was 11 when this crash would have happened and I can remember being a kid. It's the middle of winter, you're wearing a heavy coat and carrying a big book bag full of books. Getting down that aisle was difficult at the best of times and then you had to worry about people's legs sticking out in the aisle people getting in your way your book bag swinging around on your back it was very hard to walk down an aisle like that there were two emergency exits on the bus the front stairwell and the rear emergency exit each window provided a 9 by 24 inch opening to let air in but the method of opening them involved pushing together two white tabs on either side of the top of the upper section of the window and sliding it downward. A difficult thing to do, particularly if you were a child. I can remember trying to get these windows down, and I wasn't exactly the biggest kid in the world. I'm still not the biggest kid in the world. So trying to get those windows down was impossible. You had to have the strength to put to push those two tabs together, which was m more difficult than it sounded, and to slide down the window at the same time, which if those windows didn't want to go down, they didn't go down. That particular day, there would be 63 children and teens and four adults on the bus. The outing cost each person $17, and some kids had kind of realized just how crowded that bus would be. 
So they had raised the possibility of being allowed to drive up. When I say kids in regards to this accident, a lot of these kids on the bus were teenagers. They had their licenses. And so they had said, why don't we drive up in our own cars? However, the suggestion was quashed to avoid anyone getting lost or stranded apart from the group. This is a time before cell phones, so it's unlikely that a kid stranded on the side of the road is going to be able to get in touch with people at the amusement park to let them know where they are. The bus had a sign above the windshield which listed the capacity as 66 passengers. Excuse me. That number applied to school children, however, not adults, of which some of the teens on the bus were the same size. Children were allowed 13 inches of hip room on a seat, but teenagers would need more, allowing two people per seat, not three. Only four of the passengers on the bus that day were 13 or younger. The bus was so jammed that kids that were trying to reach the back when they were getting on the bus that morning simply entered through the rear emergency door rather than shifting sideways down the aisle. Now, there were four adults in the group that day. John Pierman was an associate pastor at Radcliffe Assembly of God Church. He was also a court clerk, and he was married with three kids. John Pierman would be driving the bus to Kings Island on that outing that day. He brought his daughter Christy with him, and she invited Wayne Cox, a boy that she had a crush on. The other per, uh, man in the group was Charles Keita. He went by the name Chuck, so therefore he would sometimes get nicknamed Chuck Keita Banana. And he was a youth pastor. He was married with a couple of kids, and from all accounts was a very nice man. One of the women who came was Joy Williams. She was the church's music director, and she joined the trip as a chaperone to accompany her two daughters, Robin and Kristen, who were 10 and 14. Janie Paget was a friend of hers, and because Joy's husband, Lee, wasn't coming that day, they had an extra ticket, so they brought Janie along. On that particular day, before the group left, the Reverend W. Don Tennyson prayed with the group for a safe journey. John Pierman and another church member got out of the bus and just sort of checked all of the, the dipstick and the tires just to make sure everything was good to go before they left. One survivor remembered Chuck Kita taking down the fire extinguisher from the front of the bus and reading the instructions because, quote, you never know. It took five minutes to remove it from its holster, which John Pierman said, we're lucky we're not on fire. We would have all burned up by now. The kids got to Kings Island. They went and they had fun with their friends, played on the rides, played games, won prizes, ate funnel cake, did all of those fun things that you do at an amusement park. And they were due back to the bus at 8.30. However, there's always some stragglers. There's always some kids who are trying to get by, trying to scrape by and get a few minutes of fun in. So some of them didn't make it back to the bus until 9 o'clock. There were some kids who asked John Pierman if they could stay for the 11 p.m. fireworks. They had 
done that in previous years, and it it ended up that you got back at about 3 a.m., but you got back. But they were shot down. Now, while they were loading up the bus, Harold Dennis Jr. and Andy Marks had been sitting in the back of the bus on the way down, but those seats were taken at the end of the day, so they sat in the fifth row on the left. Before everybody left, Chuck Keita once again led them all in prayer. Then they left and started heading home. Some of the windows on the bus were opened at first, owing to the warm night. But the passengers who'd gotten wet on water rides started to complain. It made them feel a little colder. So almost all of the windows were closed after that. After about an hour on the road, the bus stopped at exit 62 on Interstate 71 to go to a Sunoco gas station. When the kids got off the bus, not all of them, but some of them, to go get snacks or go to the bathroom, John Tierman took the opportunity to kind of tease his daughter Christy. She had been sitting next to Wayne Cox on the bus, and they had kissed. And everybody had sort of teased them because John Pierman was driving, and he could probably see that his daughter was making out with a boy. (laughs) But he just sort of teased her, and as she said in the documentary, he gave her a noogie and sent her on her way. He then filled the 60-gallon tank with $60 worth of gasoline. Just an aside, $60 worth of gasoline is 60 gallons. Oh, those were the days. Um, (laughs) The gas tank was directly below the first three seats on the right side of the bus. As they got back on the road, there were some people who were sitting on the laps of others. One person was lying in the aisle. If you remember anything as a kid, you have to remember being in these school buses on these trips, and kids were all over the place, particularly in a packed school bus like this. You sat where you sat. Elsewhere, Larry Wayne Mahoney was on the road. Uh, Larry Mahoney was kind of a good old boy, as far as I could tell from, from accounts and pictures of him. He grew up near the Kentucky River, and he loved the outdoors. His driver's license featured a photo of him wearing a baseball cap which said, Ride hard, die hard. Now, Mahoney drove a 1987 black Toyota Hilux. When I first read that information, I thought, where have I heard that name before? Because I don't really know a lot about the makes and models of cars and pickup trucks and those sorts of things, so the fact that I would recognize it is a little odd. And then I remembered where I recognized it from. The Hilux may sound familiar if you've ever watched the British show Top Gear. In a season three episode of the show, the two of the hosts, Jeremy Clarkson and James May, took turns with a 1988 diesel N50 Hilux and just treated it to massive amounts of punishment. What they did was they left it out in the ocean during high tide. It actually got loose and floated away, and they had to pull it out of the sand. They drove it through a shed. They dropped a trailer on it. They hit it with a wrecking ball, set it on fire, and placed it on the roof of a 23-story council building before it was demolished. They were able to restart it using everyday tools found in a toolbox without replacing parts and could still drive it into the studio. It's actually 
on a plinth in the background of the stage. If you watch Top Gear in later seasons, they put this junker on this plinth just to kind of show it off. So that crappy car that you see in the background of a Top Gear episode, that's the Hilux that I'm talking about. It was also known for its use by militant groups. These days, ISIS uses it a lot. And so it's, it's a very durable truck. That night, Larry Mahoney was at a friend's house, and he'd been drinking. But his friends refused to give him his keys back unless he promised to go straight home, which was understandable. He had actually been arrested for a DUI once before. He swore he was going to go straight home, but instead he stopped and bought more booze. Initially, he had been traveling in the right direction down a four-lane highway. So two lanes going in different directions. However, at about 10.30 p.m., he was spotted turning around and traveling north in the southbound lane for 2.3 miles. It's a Saturday night and traffic is heavy. He starts flying past multiple vehicles in the southbound passing lane, not flashing his brake lights at all. He just is flying down this road. In that 2.3 miles, he misses 14 vehicles. Two of those are tractor trailers. The bus carrying the Assembly of God group is traveling southbound in that lane. At 10.55 p.m., Larry Mahoney's Toyota Hilux and the bus collide four miles south of Carrollton, Kentucky at mile marker 40.3. Each of them are traveling about 55 miles per hour. If you look at that particular location on Google Street View, there's actually a curve, and so Larry Mahoney's truck would have flown around this curve so quickly that John Pierman in the bus wouldn't have gotten a chance to see that truck until it was too late. He pulled the wheel to the left and hit the brakes, but it was too late to do anything to avoid the collision. The impact of the truck and the bus broke the bus's suspension, which drove the leaf spring back through the 60-gallon gas tank. The destruction that it caused made the front steps just absolutely impassable. So now the only exit on the bus is the rear emergency door. The sparks from metal pieces of the bus scraping along the road as it skids along ignited the gasoline leaking from the tank. Without seatbelts to hold them in place, some children are kind of thrown from their seats. The bus was skidding forward, and the right front of the bus was tilting downward because of the suspension brake. It took 1.94 seconds from the moment of impact for the bus to finally stop. Meanwhile, Mahoney's truck struck that right front of the bus and then spun out 80 feet to the left, striking another car as well. The people in that car were uninjured. Larry Mahoney was still alive, but he was moderately injured. He, he was kind of knocked out a little bit. In fact, no one died in the initial impact, and only Mahoney and John Pierman were apparently injured at this point. But almost immediately, a fireball explodes from the front of the bus. 
a couple who were following the Toyota on the other side of the highway. They were traveling northbound, and so they were parallel to him as he went the wrong way down the other highway, and they could watch him go. They thought that he had struck a gasoline tanker because the explosion was so big. Some survivors saw either Chuck Keita or John Pearman. There were a couple of different sources that I found that had conflicting stories. One of them grabbed the fire extinguisher and began to attempt to put out the flames. John Pearman was seen ordering people off the bus. Christy Pearman stood up and called out to her dad, but that was the last that she would ever see of him. When the fireball engulfed the front of the bus, witnesses saw the flames just engulf Chuckita. Janie Paget had been sitting in one of the seats up front in the bus with Joy Williams. And she said that one minute she was inside the bus and the next she was outside the window that she had been sitting next to. She was a small woman, short, uh, didn't weigh a lot. And so she was small enough to fit through the windows and scramble outside. The temperature starts to climb in the bus, eventually reaching 2000 degrees. Children begin to crawl over seats toward the exit at the rear of the bus. The aisle is just too narrow to get down and people are starting to crowd down that as well. Conrad Garcia, who was sitting in the very back seat, struggled with the rear door for a moment, but finally got it open after kicking it once or twice. The last row of seats are a foot apart, just like the rest of the rows, but the exit is narrowed as a result. I can remember sitting in the back seats of school buses when I was in school, and those rear seats kind of stick out a little bit to obstruct that rear emergency door. So it's just one more obstruction to get out there. The polyvinyl covering on the seats starts to melt from the heat. And these kids and teenagers who are crawling over these seats are just putting their hands on hot melted plastic. If you didn't move fast, when you got to that door, you encountered a pile of teenagers reaching all the way to the top of the exit door. There was also a beverage cooler, which had been in the aisle between the seats to the second to last row, and that created even one more obstacle. Now, Harold Dennis Jr., who had been sitting up front with his friend Andy, starts moving toward the front of the bus, but he stopped when he realized just how intense the fire was. At this point, he tried to escape through a window, but that was made difficult by those complicated clasps, which locked the bus windows in place. At that point, he and several other kids tried to kick out the windows, but no one really managed it. Those weren't those kind of windows. The only light available in the bus were the flames engulfing it. So it was described as being smoky with an orange glow inside. It was very hard to get out of that bus. It suddenly became a death trap. More than 60 people were rushing down this narrow aisle to the only available exit. With the heat growing the way it is, paint starts melting off the ceiling and dripping down onto the children, causing burns on their ears and the tops of their heads. 
There was a girl named uh, Karen Foreign Madden. She had bought a helium balloon at King's Island and had been holding it in her arms as sort of a makeshift pillow before the crash. When the heat came in contact with the balloon, it exploded, and the helium caught her on fire, burning her over two-thirds of her body. Once the rear exit was opened, survivors had to jump down three feet to the ground to escape, which, when you're a kid, is... is a little more than when you're an adult. The exit was so packed full of kids that Jack Armstrong, who had been driving with his wife on the other side of the highway and had pulled over when they saw the crash, and survivor Jamie Hardesty, who had gotten out of the bus relatively quickly, needed to pull people from the pileup to relieve the pressure. If you listened to the episode on the station nightclub fire, you may remember that the people at that particular fire got stuck in the doorway. And in fact, if you had the fortitude to watch the video that was taken of that fire, you could actually see what happened. The people were piled up five deep in this double doorway. The cameraman actually left the doorway and walked around the building and came back about 30 seconds later. And in that 30 seconds, people had piled up that quickly. When he had gone through the door, there had been nobody there. That gives you some idea of just how quickly this sort of thing can happen in an emergency. Within four minutes, fire begins to just engulf the entire bus. After Jamie Hardesty had helped pull people out of the rear of the bus with Jack Armstrong, he had started running around the bus breaking windows with a piece of metal to kind of help people escape from the windows. But it didn't work. People just couldn't summon up the energy to get through at that point. The 27 people who were still inside the bus were unable to get out on their own, and no one was able to get in through the heat to retrieve them. The flames just just swallowed that bus and they raged 20 feet into the sky. Those who had burns and had managed to get off the bus were carried to a median to wait for assistance. You, you were more likely to survive if you were already seated in the rear of the bus or if you were one of the older boys. One girl had had her nose burned off, uh, and others were just blackened. Casey Orance had been burned really badly, and as she was being carried away from the bus by two other survivors, one of them who was carrying her legs dropped them because they were literally too hot to hold on to. Uh, Karen Madden, Harold Dennis Jr., and others were severely burned. There was also a gruesome untrue rumor that started to circulate after the crash that the severed hands of a dating couple were found still clasping each other on the side of the road by the bus. These sorts of rumors always go around in these disasters. There's always some disgusting, terrible story that goes around to as if there needs to be some sort of emphasis about how truly terrifying and horrific something like this is. Back in Radcliffe, parents didn't exactly know what was going on. They, some of them, still expected to be picking up their kids from the trip. There were parents who got phone calls about a crash, but there really wasn't a lot of information at that point. They knew there was a crash. 
They didn't know much more than that. And they were getting a little bit of information at a time. They were very careful not to tell too much information too quickly. So any information that they got, they had to judge whether or not to tell people. So people at the church were doing everything from just simple, quiet praying to speaking in tongues, pounding the altar, crying, sobbing. There was a lot going on, understandably so. Everybody was just anguished and terrified, and their reactions were from the heart and just from the soul. It was difficult to know who was on the bus because Chuck Keita had the only passenger list. Eventually, they would learn at 1 a.m. that at the very least, the bus driver, John Pierman, was dead. About two hours later, they received word there were at least 17 dead on the bus. By sunrise, the church members had been able to compile a list of 26 missing, aside from John Pierman. In the morning, family members of the missing were loaded onto vans. They really didn't know why they were getting on these vans. They thought they were being taken to local hospitals to look for their loved ones. Instead, the vans arrived at a Holiday Inn in Carrollton, Kentucky. The families were taken to a meeting room in the Holiday Inn, where they were informed that there were 26 bodies on the bus. I believe it was 26, it may have been 27, but it was basically that there were a certain number of bodies on that bus. They didn't confirm any deaths at that point. They didn't say, you're you know, your children are dead. They didn't say anything like that. Anything that blunt. They basically said that we have a certain number of bodies. Your children may still be missing. They're still quantified as missing, but we need to verify anything and we're not going to confirm anything unless we have confirmation. And that's one thing where everybody was very careful in this case not to go to any sort of conjecture or say, well, there are 27 dead bodies and we have a list of 27 people who are missing. Therefore, those are the dead people. They were very careful about that. We don't know these people are dead until we can match a body to a name. At that point, when they were in that meeting room, Dr. George Nichols, who is the state medical examiner, told the families, I want you all to remember your children as they are in the pictures in your wallets and in your hearts. The bodies were just unrecognizable. There wasn't anything any of them should have to see. Ironically, Larry Fair, who was the father of victim Shannon Fair, once received a medal for helping save children from a burning bus while he was serving in an armor unit in Korea in 1970. So at least one of the parents there did have some experience with this sort of thing. The families would end up not being officially notified their children were dead until about Tuesday morning. Survivors were being taken to multiple hospitals in the area. There were Cosairs Children's Hospital, Humana University of Louisville, Norton Audubon Hospital, among others. They were just scattered to the wind. Larry Mahoney would not wake up until the next day, and he had no memory of the crash when he woke up. The Toyota's roof had been crushed almost down to the dash, but Mahoney had been found lying down across the seat, so he had been relatively safe. When he was being extricated from the vehicle to be taken to the hospital, 
Three cans of Miller Lite were found beside him. Two of them were full, one was half empty. His only injuries were a concussion, a damaged knee, and a collapsed lung. The other people who were affected by the crash were not so lucky. There were 60 people who were in the hospital with burns and inhalation injuries, nine of whom were critical. Burns are just some of the most awful injuries that you can imagine, and especially when it comes to things like debriding the burns, you would you take white gauze soaked in a saline solution and wrap them on the burns. They dry and they're just peeled off and it's just extremely painful. This is the sort of thing that Her uh, Harold Dennis Jr. talked about in the documentary about how much pain he had to go through for this process. So while Larry Mahoney is laid up with a busted knee and a collapsed lung, these kids are going through hell. There were 27 people who died in the collision on Interstate 71. The bodies of three adults and 24 children and teens would be found inside the bus. The bus itself was transported to a National Guard armory before the bodies were removed due to the badly burned condition of those who died. When the county coroner was called and he arrived at the bus about an hour after the accident, the interior was still hot. After photos and video were taken of the interior, the bus was draped in tarps and loaded onto a flatbed truck so that it could be moved to the armory. The reason being that they wanted to avoid the bus becoming an obstruction on the highway. They wanted to clear the highway. And they also wanted to prevent rubberneckers from driving by to watch what was going on and the more morbid sort of tourists who would drive by to look for burned bodies, they wanted to avoid that. So they also wanted to avoid the warm weather and the heat that would rise when the sun came up. That would not make things any better. The flatbed truck was driven back up to Carrollton at two miles per hour. They did it very slowly and very carefully. And once they got it to the armory, they unloaded it. The bodies were found piled three deep in the aisle and the rear seats very close to escape. Many of the body, bodies were even found facing the rear exit. Dr. Nichols, the, the medical examiner, had been on the job for 11 years, and he actually had experience with a fire like this. He had actually worked on the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire on Memorial Day weekend in 1977, in which 164 people didn't make it out of the burning building alive. To remove the bodies from the bus in such a way as to detail what happened, they would remove the bodies that were in one row of seats, and then they would remove the seats, and so on, so as not to disturb the bodies in the aisles. They needed to do everything one step at a time. Now, they had been doing head counts of the bodies that were in the, the bus, and every time they did a head counts, they got 26, not 27. And so they were still looking for that 27th missing person. While they were moving bodies out of the bus, a deputy coroner spotted the last missing person lying on the floor underneath the seat. So that came to 27. As each body was removed, it was assigned a number. And then in 
sort of a, a very upsetting image. They would take a bag and put it over its head to retain any teeth that fi might fall out so they could keep that for identification purposes. They were then placed on the floor in a row on the right side of the bus. It took until 5 p.m. on Sunday before all of the bodies were removed from the bus. All of the autopsies were then completed by 8.30, and everyone was identified by the end of Monday. I think it was about 6 o'clock they were all taken care of. Joy Williams was actually the only person identified on Sunday, owing to the fact that she was the only adult woman who died in the, in the fire. Dr. Nichols would report at a press conference that everyone died of smoke inhalation, although that wasn't entirely accurate. Chuck Keita died from burning. Others on the bus surely suffered serious burns as well before dying. As he put it, it, it really doesn't matter, and he was trying to kind of soften the blow for people who had really already suffered enough knowing that their children had died in such a horrible way. But essentially, no one on the bus would have died had there been no fire. After they identified everybody, hearses start to arrive at the morgue, at this temporary morgue, and they arrive in intervals. The reason being that the last thing that you need is 27 hearses showing up at once, picking up 27 bodies, and then leading this gruesome, horrific parade through Carrollton and through other towns. The Nelson Edelin Bennett Funeral Home handled 17 of those funerals. The mortician and his wife made a point of not opening the body bags to look at the remains. What they ended up doing was just taking the body bags themselves and putting them in the, in the caskets. And if any family members wanted their loved one to be buried with a certain outfit, they would just place the outfit on top of the body bag. On Thursday, May 19th, a memorial service was held at the football field in Radcliffe, attended by Reverend Tennyson, Governor Wilkinson, and others. The uh, President Reagan and Vice President Bush sent their condolences to that to memorial as well. At this point, they start investigating why this happened, and there's always conjecture that you see on news stories wondering why, you know, throwing out theories, throwing out rumors, things that people saw, things that people say they saw. There was discussion on one news broadcast that I saw that Larry Mahoney may have been racing with a motorcycle at the time of the crash. But it quickly became apparent what the cause was. Mahoney was tested and found to have a blood alcohol level of 0.24 in his bloodstream at the time of the crash. The legal blood alcohol content in Kentucky at the time was 0.10. The bus and the truck would have had about two and a half seconds between one another to avoid the collision. Pierman had three quarters of a second to avoid the collision, so had neither the time nor the distance to avoid the truck. In the documentary, Impact After the Crash, I think the title, it'll be in the episode notes, they show a recreation of what John Pierman would have seen, and there is no way that he have, could have reacted in time. It's, it's that. It's instantaneous. 
it's so quick that he wouldn't have had the opportunity to do much of anything. But that wasn't really the problem here. The 60-gallon gas tank on the bus sat on the lower right side of it with no protection around it. There is a news clip in the documentary where they show an example of what the gas tank looked like on this bus. And the only way that it could be more exposed if it, is if it were basically sitting outside of the frame. It's very exposed. There was a two to three inch gash found in the tank caused by the piercing of its exterior by the suspension's leaf spring. Now, there were bolts, bolt holes on the frame behind the gas tank, which were meant to secure a sturdy steel safety cage to protect the gas tank in case of an accident. When I say cage, you may be thinking of something a little different than what it actually is. The... I, I, flimsy cage, you know, threaded metal, little wires, that sort of thing, doesn't exactly sound very sturdy in a crash. And that's because that's not what this cage is. The cage itself is a thick frame of at least one to two inch steel bars, basically, wrapped around this gas tank. It's very sturdy. When you see it in the documentary, it is unsurprising that that sort of thing would stand up in an accident. However, that cage was not required by law until April of 1977. The bus in the crash was built only eight days earlier, so the cage did not need to be and was not installed. In Ford tests following the crash, it was shown that if the cage were installed, it would have survived the impact. Basically, that could have saved everybody on that bus, a simple cage that more than likely would have been less expensive than what Ford inevitably had to pay to victims. It was also built to, for use as a school bus, but it wasn't being used as such. There were differences in the laws between what was necessary for a school bus and a non-school bus, including the need for a non-school bus to have more emergency exits than it had. That was one problem that they had to deal with. The other problem was Larry Mahoney. Two days after the crash, Larry Wayne Mahoney was charged with 27 counts of murder. He was still in Humana Hospital, University of Louisville at the time. He only had $75,000 in liability insurance at the time of the crash, which made the possibility of covering all of those victims just a joke. The state intended to seek the death penalty at one point, although eventually the state decided not to seat a capital murder indictment. Those charges were inevitably changed. His defense described the bus as a, quote, rolling tin can with a bomb underneath it. The dead didn't pass due to accident trauma. They died from the trauma that resulted from the fire. Is As much of a dodge as it may sound in terms of a defense, it's accurate. It's not a lie. It's not, it's, it's not a bad argument in terms of defense. It really wasn't his fault in terms of, you know, what he did didn't cause anybody to die. The impact, nobody died in that. But the fire is what killed people. And he may have caused the fire through an accident, but 
that could have been stopped by something that Ford could have prevented easily and didn't. So in terms of a defense, it may seem like a bit of a, a pointing fingers to avoid responsibility, but it's not a bad argument. The trial was held elsewhere because of the anger in the community. There were people who were willing to, you know, it's the South. They were willing to grab arms and, and, and you know, go to the courthouse and grab him. But that didn't happen, luckily enough. Larry Mahoney received 16 years in prison, which included concurrent 10-year sentences for each of the 27 counts of manslaughter in the second degree, concurrent 16-year sentences for each of 16 counts of assault in the second degree, and concurrent 5-year sentences for each of 27 counts of wanton endangerment in the first degree. If it sounds like I'm giving Mahoney a lot of leeway, I don't want to say that I, I am, but he really turns out to be somebody who sounds as though he understands what he did and feels immensely sorry for what he did, for what his part in this was. While he was in prison, he reduced his time by six years for good behavior. He also obtained his GED. He participated in Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous meetings, and he worked as a janitor. At one point, the state parole board recommended him for parole, but he declined. He was willing to serve out his sentence. He also started corresponding with uh, Karen Madden, who survived the crash. She sent him a letter. He responded, and they started uh, sending letters to one another. She went to see him in prison, and it was a healing process for both of them, it seems, from the way that it's described. He was later released on September 1st, 1999, and has since avoided the spotlight. He could very easily go out and speak to kids and other people about the dangers of drunk driving and what could happen when you are a drunk driver, but he doesn't do that. That would be commendable, but one of the parents, I believe it was Janie Fair, who was Shannon's Fair, Shannon Fair's mother, said something along the lines of, if staying out of the spotlight is what it takes to keep him sober, then he should do that. You know, if, if not going out and speaking is what it takes to keep him on the straight and narrow, he should do that, whatever it takes to, to keep him right. Three weeks after he was released from prison, he got married to a woman that he had been dating before he entered the prison. But that's kind of the last that anybody's heard from him. It's not that he's hidden away completely. He still lives in the area. He works in the area. But he really, he doesn't talk. He doesn't give interviews, anything like that. When people try to talk to his family, it they kind of say, you know, we don't want to talk about that anymore. And they shut it down. Given the way that it's, the reaction is, it seems like it's twofold in that the family is trying to protect him and he's trying to protect himself and they may also be trying to lessen the pain of the other families involved. Ford Motor Company 
they did sue them and they would later make a settlement of $40 million to the victims and their families. A lot of the families just took it without any sort of complaint or struggle. They needed the money too much to pay for medical bills and those sorts of things, which is understandable. The Nunnally family who lost their daughter Patty in the tragedy, they took a different route. They told Ford that they would take just $1 if the company would recall all pre-1977 buses and retrofit them with the steel gas tank cages, bigger safety windows, and escape routes. Ford said no. It reminds me of Fight Club and the scene where Edward Norton is telling his seatmate on the plane what he does for a living. And he basically says, you know, I do a job for a large motor company and I or insurance company, something like that. I decide based on an accident, whether it's cheaper to fix the cars that have this flaw in it or just pay off people who die in these crashes. This is the sort of thing that it reminds me of, which is awful. Ford's settled then eventually with the Nunnally family for $3.8 million after legal fees and the like. It, it may seem like that's a bad thing, but it actually led to the Nunnally family being able to do some good. And I'll get to that. Ford refused to admit wrongdoing, but they were willing to settle. The survivors had a difficult time. Karen Foreign Madden said people called her Freddy Krueger, Crispy Critter. She has very serious burns. I believe um, she has very serious burns across her neck. Uh, within five and a half years, she had gone through 49 operations. So she went through a very difficult time. Casey Orance ended up losing a leg from about the knee down. Harold Dennis Jr. needed to wear a pressure mask after the crash, but after a while he simply refused and he just took it off. He would later go on to play football in college and has since done motivational speaking in the years since. There's video of him on YouTube doing some of that. It's pretty impressive. He's a he's a very he's a very it's very admirable what he's done in the years since then. Lee Williams, who is the husband of Joy Williams and the father of Robin and Kristen, who all died in the fire, eventually connected with Dottie Pierman, the widow of John Pierman. The two of them met up at a cafe once, I believe is, is how they describe it, and he kind of said within four hours of sitting in that cafe and talking, they realized that they had a lot in common and, and that sort of thing. And they eventually fell in love and got married. And Wayne Cox and Christy Pierman, who were kissing on the bus, they later got married as well. The Carrollton bus collision remains the worst drunk driving accident in United States history. It is still the third deadliest bus crash in the United States. The same number of people died when a school bus struck a wrecker and careened into the Big Sandy River in Prestonburg, Kentucky in February of 1958. 29 people perished when the brakes failed on a bus transporting the Yuba City High School a cappella choir to another high school in Orinda, California in 1976. The bus went through a rail, fell 21 feet, and landed upside down, crushing the roof down to the bottom of the windows. 
The worst bus, a bus accident in American history occurred in 1963 when a converted flatbed truck turned bus carrying migrant workers was struck by a train outside of Chualar, California, killing 32 people. Now, a lot of the parents of the kids in the accidents who died in the accident, who survived the accident, they kind of were at loose ends after it happened and were trying to find a way to help. And that's where Mothers Against Drunk Driving came in. A lot of the moms and the dads found somewhere where they could help. And Carolyn Nunnally, who was the mother of 10-year-old Patty Nunnally, and the one who said, give us a dollar and just fix your buses, and Ford said no, she began to work with MAD and eventually became the organization's national president. She sort of rose up the ranks. Janie Fair, who was the mother of 14-year-old victim Shannon Fair, was a MAD volunteer and rose to become a member of the board of directors. And Lee and Dottie Williams also participate in local MAD chapters as well. I'm sure they're not the only ones, but those are the ones that I found listed. So it, it seems to be something that really helped them and has helped others as well. The, the bus itself was kept for a while and then it was finally buried in an undisclosed location. They finally just got rid of it so it wouldn't become a spectacle or some sort of gruesome tourist attraction. The NTSB recommended that all pre-1977 buses be taken out of service. Another recommendation was a toughening of flammability standards for the seats and other interior parts in school buses. And its suggestions also led to a rule that all school buses built after September 1st, 1994, having have an increasing number of emergency exits depending on the capacity of the bus. You may notice I keep saying recommended and suggestions in regard to the UT, uh, NTSB. If you know anything about the UT, the NTSB, it's that they can't make rules. They can't make laws to change these. They can only make suggestions. They can only suggest this is what you should do. And most of the time, the FAA, the uh, other travel-related organizations, they make those laws. But it doesn't always add up. It doesn't always come to fruition. It's just suggestions based on what they investigate and what they find. Kentucky itself requires school buses to have nine emergency exits, a front and back door, a side door, four emergency windows, and two roof exits. They also require a steel cage around the gas tank, a stronger frame and roof to prevent crushing in an impact, flame retardant high back seats with extra padding, a fuel system that can slow leaks, reflective tape on all emergency exits, strobe lights on the exterior of the bus, and the buses must also be powered by diesel fuel, which is less flammable than gasoline. Some states have made it a requirement to display the different seating capacities for adults and children in the bus. Like I said earlier, in the case of the Carrollton crash, a lot of these children were teenagers and therefore large enough to be considered adults in terms of how much space they would occupy. Only six states currently require school buses to have seatbelts. Kentucky is not one of them. In fact, after a school bus crash in November which killed five children, the arguments for school bus seatbelts arose once again. It's always one of those 
things that if you've been on a school bus and it gets to be a rough ride and you start sort of bumping up and down and shifting this way and that, or if you see the occasional leaked security video of a driver, school bus driver driving erratically and children sort of bouncing up in the air and flying all over the place, it comes up. And it always seems like something that should be on a bus and isn't. So hopefully eventually something will be put onto a bus, but in terms of seatbelts, but not these days. When it comes to memorials, there are two memorials that are mentioned. A black marble memorial stands at North Harden Memorial Garden Cemetery in Radcliffe, which was paid for by Ford Motor Company. A list of the people on the bus at the time of the crash graces the memorial. There are also two signs on either side of the highway at the point where the crash occurred, which say in big block letters, site of fatal bus crash, May 14th, 1988. It, actually, if you look at Google Street View and you look at where the crash occurred, the signs are in the picture. So you can see the signs where it happened. And there are some people who live nearby who kind of want the signs to go away but the people who lost people in the crash they want them to stay to remind people what happened there and there they stay the timing on researching this disaster is i i found it sort of morbidly funny just because a couple of weeks ago, two of the crime documentaries that I listened to, Generation Y and True Crime Garage, both did episodes on Diane Schuler. If you don't know who Diane Schuler is, you may remember the accident that she caused. She was driving her three nieces and her two kids home in her brother's borrowed SUV uh, minivan from a camping trip. And she sort of wandered around for a while, uh, apparently smoked a little pot at some point, drank a lot while the kids were in the car, and eventually drove the wrong way up the Taconic Expressway for about a mile and a half, and then struck another vehicle. She killed everybody in her van except for her son and everybody in the other vehicle. She was later found to have had a blood alcohol content comparable, if not equivalent, to what Larry Mahoney had in this accident. And she did have pot in her system. There is a documentary about the that particular crash called There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane. And when I listened to those two podcasts, I went back and watched it. I had watched it before, but I didn't really remember it that well. So I went back and rewatched it. And it's very upsetting in more ways than one. One way that it was kind of upsetting was I didn't particularly remember that at a certain point in the documentary when they're talking about the crash, when they finally get to the point where they talk about the precise moment when the crash occurs and two of the people who were there helping extricate 
the kids from the van, you know, trying to, trying to extricate them, trying to save people. They opened the door to the driver's seat and her body just spilled out onto their feet. And if you watch the documentary, if you do go and watch it, it is on YouTube for free. So you can go and watch it. Just keep in mind that at that particular point, when they start to mention that they cut to photos of her body lying on the ground. So there's your warning. And that kind of shocked me because I didn't remember that. And I don't think that they mentioned it in the two podcasts that I listened to, but I, either way, I had completely forgotten that they had mentioned it. And when it came up on the screen, I just sort of reared back. Uh, not that I'm grossed out by pictures of dead bodies. I'm normally pretty tolerant of seeing that sort of thing, but a, a little preparation doesn't hurt. Let's put it that way. But the other upsetting thing about that particular documentary is that her family, her husband and her, I believe it's her sister-in-law, are very concerned about retesting the results and making sure that they came from her because they have defended her just to astronomical levels and it's understandable she's their loved one you don't want to think that your loved one is going to do something like this you know particularly the part where she gets drunk gets stoned and drives the wrong way down the highway and kills four family members she normally wasn't like that they said you know if she did smoke pot she would do it in her bedroom when everybody was at, in bed and she was all tucked in and all of that, they defend her to the point where it starts to get a little ridiculous. They say that the test results may have been switched, which repeated tests have shown that they weren't. They've been DNA tests on the test that they are already have, and it's hers. And there's so many things that they just keep retesting this stuff, and it just sort of emphasizes the point that she was drunk and she was stoned and and so that's what happened was that she she had what seems to be like one day where she went I don't want to say off the rails but she basically had a bad day and that resulted in the deaths of eight people and as somebody in the one of the relatives of one of the men who died in the other car said in the documentary she said I forgive her it took me a little bit and and it was difficult, but I forgive her. She did something wrong and everybody died, but I forgive her. I don't forgive her family. And it's, it's easy to understand why, because they keep going on TV shows and keep going on interviews and things like that and, and defending something which inevitably, as, as things keep going, just gets harder and harder to defend. And when you compare it to the case of Larry Mahoney in this instance and his family and the way that they be, are behaved in the aftermath and in the years following this, Larry Mahoney and his friends and his family are admirable. Maybe he didn't go out and start giving speeches about how drunk driving is bad and how you shouldn't do it. But he didn't go out and defend himself and say rather aptly that 
Ford should have done this and Ford should have done that. And maybe I hit the bus, but I didn't kill anybody. And he didn't go out and make things worse by sort of digging a deeper hole. He went out. Not, not, he didn't go out at all. He stayed home and he went back and he accepted his punishment and he's living his life now. And if Diane Schuler's family had responded in the same way, that would be one thing, but they're not. And the comparison between the two cases is just, is just surprising. Not the least of which, because I had never even heard this disaster existed, at least as far as I remember. And it strikes me now after watching There's Something About Diane and then moving on to this, that I hadn't even thought that there was such a thing as a worst drunk driving disaster. I, I tend to think of disasters in terms of plane crashes and, and train crashes, especially when it comes to sort of impairment with intoxication, not in terms of somebody is driving drunk and they hit a bus or somebody is driving drunk and they drive a bus. In this particular instance, it was somebody else, not the driver of the bus. And so it's just kind of interesting to me to have, you know, sort of a worse drunk driving accident than the Diane Schuler case, which seems like it should be the worst drunk driving accident. Eight people died. That's awful. That's terrible. But there's something worse than that. There's something where somebody drove drunk and more people died. It's just, it's just, uh, it's very hard to comprehend. It's just so hard to comprehend compared to, you know, somebody getting drunk and getting in the cockpit of a plane, which I, I don't get, but I kind of get, you know, I just, I have a very hard time wrapping my mind around how you get in your car and you're driving, you're drunk and you're driving and you cause this much damage. Regardless of the fact that nobody died in the initial crash, it wouldn't have burned if he hadn't hit it. And as much of a defense as it is that it would, you know, he didn't cause any deaths himself, the gas tank caused it, his accident caused the gas tank to start on fire. So it's kind of, you can make a defense either way, but either way, it's, it's just, it's just so hard to comprehend. It's also, it's almost harder to comprehend than when earlier today I was on Wikipedia looking at plane crashes where people committed suicide by crashing the plane. That's, somehow makes a lot more sense to me just because I I have depression and I have anxiety and and so as terrible as having mental illness is I can understand where you get to that point where you know I've never gotten to that point but I can understand where other people get to that point because their mental illness is that extreme and so that is the Carrollton bus collision. That is probably one of the more upsetting uh, disasters that I've ever had to do. I did have to kind of take time to myself here or there to, to take deep breaths and, and watch kittens playing and dog videos and those sorts of things to um, kind of deal with uh, 
the deaths of children, which is always difficult. Every time uh, I do a disaster where children die, I inevitably have to take a lot more of these breaks because it's so difficult to understand what what causes these things when it isn't kids dying. The next episode that I'm doing, I'm not exactly sure. I do have a nice long list of disasters that people gave me from the Kickstarter, which I'm still very grateful for because I love them all. Every single one of them is so good. There is one particular disaster that two people requested that is going to require a lot of information and a lot of research if I want to do it right. And it's probably going to be a two and a half hour episode. So I may kind of wait on it just so I can gather as much information as possible and get the script as long as possible. And that will probably mean that I'm going to be doing a little bit smaller of the smaller disasters next. And also one of the disasters that's on that list, I may be able to do a road trip. So I may hold off on that one too. We'll see how it goes. So I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing next, but until next time, this is Jennifer Matarese. Stay safe. Mm -hmm.